Why don't we go inside? Okay. Open up the door here. Turn on the lights. Hi, it's Asif Manvi, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Again. One of these days I'll find my way out of here if I don't freeze to death first. Is it's that cold. temperature controlled? Yes, it's climate controlled in order to maintain the range of instruments that are here. Right. Now I'm in the musical instrument collection of the National Museum of American History. Guitar cases, cabinets with the windows to see inside, seeing a couple of pianos. This place has everything, and I mean everything. There's Prince's electric guitar. Grandmaster Flash's turntable. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep Evening gowns from the Supremes. Stradivarius violins, posters, costumes. There are over 5,000 objects in here. It might appear that there is some disorder in the room, yeah, but there's really not. Really? Is that right? <laughs> we know exactly where everything is. <laughs> it looks like is. my dad's garage, you know? Yeah. We're... Somewhere in there is your old <laughs> right. report cards. Exactly right. Yeah, we're on top of things here. We're kind of in the process. Now that voice you hear, that is curator John Troutman. Nobody knows the stories behind the objects in this room better than he does. But I can only pick one object for today's episode. And the very first thing he wants to show me isn't some flashy grand piano. It's a beat-up travel case. An instrument travel case. It doesn't look like much, but there's something written on it. It says, my bread and butter has always been the nylon string, Jose Feliciano. Over the course of a career that spanned 50 years, Jose Feliciano won eight Grammys in both English and Spanish. In a lot of ways, Jose Feliciano's story is the quintessential American success story. You know that it would be untrue. You know that I would be a liar. This is a really exciting instrument for us. We try to collect instruments that can tell important stories, that can kind of connect music to American history right. um, in powerful ways. Jose Feliciano was born in Puerto Rico in September of 1945. You may have seen pictures of him wearing dark wraparound sunglasses. He was born blind, but that never got in the way of his love of music. In 1968, when Jose Feliciano was only 22 years old, he had his first huge hit, an acoustic cover of The Doors' Light My Fire. The song won him international acclaim. Soon thereafter, Jose was invited to sing the Star-Spangled Banner at Game 5 of the World Series. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention please. Please rise and join in the singing of our national anthem sung by Jose Feliciano. Covering Light My Fire may have made him famous, but covering the national anthem would bring him infamy. The case that I'm staring at and the guitar inside of it were donated at a very special ceremony hosted by Dr. David Scorton, the secretary of the Smithsonian. Now, I followed Mr. Feliciano's career for a long time, and I must say that, in my opinion, one of the most enduring contributions 
to American music is actually his rendition of the national anthem that was played during the 1968 World Series between the St. Louis Cardinals and the Detroit Tigers. Now, modern audiences are used to different interpretations of the national anthem. At that time, though, in 1968, people were not ready for it. They had not yet heard Jimi Hendrix or Lady Gaga, but a soulful, slower tempo version of the national anthem on acoustic guitar was considered controversial at the time. So here I have a couple of um, quotes from the, the Detroit Free Press and others of things that were actually said after he performed oh, okay. the national anthem Great. in 68. Mm -hmm. Why don't you read it? Wrote one fan, what screwball gave permission to have the national anthem desecrated by singing it in the jazzy hippie manner that it was sung? It was disgraceful, and I sincerely hope such a travesty will never be permitted again. I'll, I'll read this one. I've never heard anything so disgraceful and disrespectful. The only things that resembled our national anthem were the words. I am ashamed of the person who would let such a thing happen. I remember hearing John Glenn say, I get chills when I hear our national anthem. I didn't get chills. I got sick. No wonder our country is losing its dignity. That could be a tweet today. Exactly. Substitute the rock and roll performance for taking a knee. Exactly. Same rhetoric, yeah. same anger, same feeling of disassociation from what they're perceiving yeah. in the world, taking a knee, or his performance is a sublime expression of patriotism. Right. It created problems for his career. Is that right? And it took him a long time to recover from that. That challenged people at the time. I mean, 68 was, oh boy, right. um, one of the most challenging years that Americans have faced right. um, in the 20th century, for sure. Right. Yeah. yeah. So we were in Vietnam. And of course, this is the year in which uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated. Bobby course, Kennedy right. is during the Democratic National Convention. Right. So it was a big year. So that's why this, this guitar is so important. It establishes for our visitors a longstanding tradition of questioning what makes a patriot. Right, right. I had dinner last night with Jose Feliciano. He's in town. Wait, he is? And he's actually available today. Okay, John. Feels like you kind of buried the lead there. I'll call his, um, his wife and see if, uh, if this is something that they can do. He's 73. His birthday was yesterday. Luckily, there's plenty to explore while I'm waiting to pull Jose Feliciano away from his birthday celebration. So other than the guitar, yeah. you mentioned that Jose donated other things to the museum. So what kind of other things did he donate? Yeah, you know, it was really fun to, to work with uh, Jose and his family. And we, you know, took some time just to kind of walk through and just kind of look at different sorts of, of objects in the house and in his studio. And there were just a few that began to really kind of gather our attention. However, first I need to go get the keys in order to open this cabinet. <laughs> this is awkward, John. This is very awkward. We will stand here while you go get the keys. John Troutman will be right back with the keys any minute now. 
So that's the key oh going God. in. Good job you have the key. <laughs> Good job. Okay, let's see if this works. Let's see if what ah. I think is behind this door is okay. actually behind this door. So this is one of the um, the objects that we collected from Jose. This uh, is his Perkins Braille Rider, which... Oh, um, wow. Yeah. He had been using this Braille Rider to write letters and to write lyrics wow. um, to songs for decades, since the 60s. What we're looking at is a essentially what looks like a typewriter. You know, it looks like a con- conventional typewriter, but far fewer keys. Then it has a sign on it that says, Perkins Brailler used by Jose Feliciano. Paper has the lyrics to Feliz Navidad typed on it. Wow. And just like that, it's Christmas in July because I get the best gift of all. Jose Feliciano calls back and agrees to talk to me. And that's up next after this quick break. Jose Feliciano's performance of the National Anthem of the World Series was an important cultural moment for America. So I can only imagine what it was like for him. Where would you like Jose we're to gonna, we're gonna have You guys sit right here. The chair Probably. with no Let, arms let's for get, Jose. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're holding your guitar. And John, yeah, you can yeah, sit next yeah. to Jose. You just happen to be here. Yeah, I just happen to be here. So um, thank you so much for sitting down with us. This all mm. came together very fast. This story of the guitar and you playing it, it resonated for me on, 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 on many levels, especially with what's going on today in our world. And I want to ask mm. you, can you just take us back? How old were you in, the, in 1968 when you sang the National Anthem? In 1968, I was all of 22. 22. Yep. But tell me about, so you go out there and you play this uh, rendition of the Star Spangled Banner and you did an interpretation of the song that I don't think a lot of people were expecting or had heard before. Was that something you just decided in the moment? It was something you planned to not sing it the way it was normally Well, in my mind, I had planned to do it different, of course, because I noticed that the way it was being done before wasn't really attracting the attention of the uh, fans the way I thought it should have been. And my version wasn't that outlandish. It was a combination of uh, soul, gospel, and because I'm Latin, I gave it a little bit of a Latin feel. Yeah, right. And I I love the way you sang it, but a lot of people didn't. There was blowback. Did you feel like your career was affected after that. Uh, oh, definitely it was, uh, and not for the good. Um, radio stations stopped playing my records. Really? So that didn't help me any. I had, uh, after Light My Fire, I had another hit that was happening, which was my version of High Heel Sneakers. Yeah. And it was climbing. But as soon as they stopped playing me, uh, it didn't climb. Right. And it wasn't easy, but... You know, you persevere. I knew that I was a patriot, and I still am. And uh, I 
even though I'm Hispanic, I'm a Hispanic American, mm -hmm. and I love America very much. I think it's really interesting, based on what is happening today in our culture, with this question of what is a patriot, who gets to be a patriot, our association with the flag and with the national anthem, and what you did at that time when you went out there and sang the national anthem, and it was a beautiful rendition, and yet at the same time, for many people, it wasn't the national anthem they wanted to hear. How much of that do you think had to do with the fact that you were Hispanic, you were singing it in this sort of gospel, uh, you know, bluesy way that for a lot of people who were watching the game at home and maybe in the stands was not the way they wanted to picture America? Uh, I don't know. I can't say because I never faced it as a racial thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't because I was Hispanic. It was because uh, I had long hair. I played a guitar instead of letting myself be backed up by the usual orchestra or organ player. Right. And it was different. I came in with a lot of guts, I mean, with a lot of courage. Mm -hmm. People just weren't used to somebody coming out and not going, Oh, say, can you see? You know, uh, sorry, <laughs> that's not me. You did that yeah. very well, thank you, thank you. <laughs> was it any, at any point in your mind when you were singing it, was it any kind of an act of protest or anything like that that you were doing? No, it wasn't a protest. I mean, what was it? A pro well, maybe a musical protest because mm -hmm. I didn't want to sing the anthem the way that every other singer sang it. Right. I just, I loved America. It was a chance to express that. And I had a chance. I mean, the exposure I got on TV right. was amazing. Do you see? Um... No, I don't see anything. <laughs> okay. I'll let you make that joke. Um, do you see a parallel between what happened to you at that point and what's happening today in our, in our country with people and their patriotism being called out around the flag, around football players, around, well, you know. Uh, I'll tell you what, I don't understand uh, why athletes, and that goes uh, really for football, who are making tons of money, should be protesting about the anthem. They should stand up and be proud that this is a country that has tried to right its wrongs. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean this. Yes, America had civil rights problems, you know, where African-American people have never been given their rights, you know. But America, in its struggle to be right, has tried to fix some of those wrongs. And I think that the situation for African-Americans is a lot better than it was. Now, it doesn't mean that it can't get better, but all I'm saying is, before you protest, look at the value of where you've come and where you've gone, and then, and then if you still feel that way, fine, protest, but know the gains uh, that have been made before you knock our country, and I see the gains. Uh, okay, I, I feel compelled to jump in here to share a few thoughts. First, 
I think that the players who are taking a knee during the anthem are not unaware of the gains we've made as a country, but I think they are using the anthem as a way to call attention to the fact that there are still some very necessary gains that need to be made. The players who take a knee think we can be better Americans, and we can do that by addressing head-on police brutality and its all-too-frequently lethal consequences. But that's a discussion for another episode, like... You know, maybe if the Smithsonian someday comes into possession of Colin Kaepernick's knee pads. Not a bad idea. Do you think that the ability to protest, wherever that might be, is actually one of the greatest gifts of a free society in America? Definitely. Definitely. You have the right to say, even though, let's say, he may not want to hear it, you have the right that was given to you by the Constitution to even complain about our current president. I mean, why did you choose to play it that way and not just sing it the way you sang it beautifully just a couple of minutes ago in the sort of traditional fashion? Why did you decide to play it? Because I didn't like it that way. You didn't like it? No. Now, some people might say that's unpatriotic, right? But it's not. I I mean, if you like the anthem a certain way, you have the right and freedom to change it. Right. I didn't change it very much. All I did was put a little soul into it right. and feeling because the audiences at the ballpark couldn't wait till the person who was singing the anthem was done with it. Right, right. And I said to myself, what is this? This is our anthem. Yeah. We should kiss the flag and say, oh, Lord, thank goodness for a country right. like ours. And these people were not. These people just wanted to eat their peanuts, have their beer or hot dog or whatever, and go on with the game. Well, so, to me, it was it was about more than that. Right. So it's a really fascinating thing because you were. Pro- it sounds like what you were trying to do was actually get people to pay attention to the anthem. Most definitely. And, and most definitely. And actually, was an act of uber patriotism. By making people, you know, you felt like people aren't paying attention. They're eating their peanuts. They're going to the bathroom during the anthem. And you wanted them to, so you were giving them a way of listening to it that was incredibly entertaining and different and made them listen. And also a little easier on their ears, you know, in a sense. Right. Because, you know, usually the anthem was written for an orchestra going, bum, 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 you know. Right. And it's more than that. Right. You have to make the anthem available to people so they'll respect the flag more. At that time, did you ever have conversations with those people who were offended or who were banning you from the radio about your rendition? No, I never did. You never talked to them? I never never did, no. No, what would you say to them today? Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. Well, that's okay. Because you would say that, like, as an American citizen, you have the right to interpret that in the way that you felt like you wanted to at that Definitely. time. Definitely. Definitely. Right. right. So this, this guitar, you felt like, was worthy of the donation. Oh, I definitely. Yeah. You know, if I'm going to be in this wonderful museum, I better give them one of my better instruments. And uh, the guitar is happy that she's here. Now, having a legendary guitarist and his legendary guitar under the same roof is a rare treat. So curator John Troutman saw this as an opportunity and brought Jose's guitar out of storage for a reunion. It's getting there. It's getting there. 
old guitar, I've come to see you Just to find out how you are We traveled the many a road together We've done so many things and gotten far Now I've come to see you Play a couple of chords to make me feel good We always had such fun together I've done many things I shouldn't have done because of you Many a lonely night we spent together Wishing for someone who would hear us Many is the time we sang our songs We didn't feel strong But courage came along and Oh guitar, I've come to see you Just to sit and play our songs Old guitar copy of the podcast because I have to register that song so you guys can... Wait, you just wrote that song right now? Wait, wait, wait. You just wrote that song right now? Right there. Wow. Is that how you write music? You just... Well, nowadays, yeah. I had a better way uh, and the way was uh, my studio. You know, music just comes. Music is the flow of life within us. I have this ability that I've developed in my later years where now I understand what Bob Dylan did when everything came out of him at once. Yeah. Everything is coming out of me. Tomorrow I'd remember the melody, but I wouldn't remember the words, you, you see? Wow. So. Well, the words were beautiful and the melody was as well. So I think... Uh, and I think we got something, bro. We got something here. I don't, I'm not like a music producer, but I'm like... I think we got ourselves a hit, boys. I think so, I think so. Sweet. I was truly blown away. I mean, I had a front row seat to a private show from a living legend. It was a lot to unpack. So a few weeks later, I sat down with John Troutman again to try to process what happened in that conversation. That interview did not go uh, exactly in the direction that I thought expected <laughs> it was um but then uh, then a beautiful song came out of it you know oh my God. And, and so that was <laughs> that was unreal i couldn't believe that yeah. i mean he, he was just full of surprises that day and 
it didn't go as anticipated necessarily, but that's probably a, a good thing, you know, I mean, because that's, that's where we get to really the heart of these conversations about patriotism, about music making, about the value of art. It was all kind of there. I mean, I, the complicated nature of it is what's fascinating to me. Like mm -hmm. the idea that what happened to him through the lens of what we're looking at now, it's clear that the racism he was dealing with, the prejudice that he dealt with in that moment, but, but the idea that he doesn't associate it with his own ethnicity, the fact that he was Hispanic, um, is interesting to me. And, and uh, is also directly correlated to his not associating what is happening today with the African-American athletes protesting. What do you think of that? Like he, he basically, you know, he, he, he was like, no, it's not because I'm, it wasn't Hispanic, it's because I was just counterculture. That he didn't necessarily see the parallels, I think, speaks in really remarkable ways to how um, the anthem functions in our society and to how memory functions, perhaps, as well for mm -hmm. him. But comments that we do see from those 1968 newspaper reports are indicative of just an inability to see the other side or to see any other manner in which you can kind of respect a different interpretation in that regard to the anthem. Right. I mean, it's also the, the, is he a product of his generation? You know, my parents, when they emigrated from India, just accepted a certain level of racism when, when they emigrated. Like, I grew up in England, and when we moved to England as a kid in, in the 60s, in the 70s as well, and it wasn't called racism. It was never, you know, that's the beauty of racism. Racists never say, I'm racist right now. <laughs> You know, it's always, right. it's always put into a context. So there was almost an acceptance of it, which we now, I think, are in a cultural moment where we're calling that out. You know, you have long hair, you know, but it's, it's ultimately, subtext, uh, subtext is, is yeah. that there's something different and non-traditional, i.e. white, mm -hmm. about you. And that is something that I internalized as a kid, and it took me for years to realize, like, oh, that was a kind of societal, structured form of racism that existed, but also, like, personal prejudice on the part of certain people. What's fascinating about sports and music and entertainment is that, you know, we often kind of perceive them as being an escape from the realities mm -hmm. of day-to-day -day life in the world. But, in fact, they disarm you in regard, in, you know, in the sense that, you go to a stadium, you're going there to have a good time, you know, or if you go to a film, you're going to have a good time. But in fact, it's at those moments where entertainment can really bring to the fore these critical conversations in really unexpected and powerful ways. Jose Feliciano's rendition of the anthem is unexpected and it is powerful. And if you've never heard the whole thing, or even if you have, it's totally worth hearing. At the ceremony where Jose donated his guitar to the Smithsonian, he performed the national anthem 50 years after he first sang it at the World Series. And this time, nobody protested his performance. Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light What so proudly we 
wheel at the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight for the ramparts we watch. We're so gallantly streaming And the rocket red glare The bombs bursting in air They gave proof through the night That our flag was still there Say, does that star arms spangled banner yet wave or the land and all of the free and the home of the brave? God bless America. Next time on Lost at the Smithsonian. How exciting is this for you on a scale of one to ten? I'm like, I'm kind of shaking right now. You are? Yeah. The yellow brick road was too big to fit into the American History Museum. So, we've got the next best thing. And it's surprising because there's no Mm -hmm. rubies and they're not even really slippers. Yeah. Dorothy's Ruby Slippers, next time on Lost at the Smithsonian. Lost at the Smithsonian is produced by Mary Beth Kirshner. Our executive producer and editor is Ellen Weiss. Technical support from Robin Wise. Fact-checking from Danielle Roth and scripting by Alex Berg. Mixing and sound design by Casey Holford and John Delore. Original theme music by Casey Holford. Our supervising producer is Jordan Bell, and our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Huge thanks to the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, Eric Jentz, Ryan Lintelman, John Troutman, and Laura Duff, for all their help in making this show. Lost at the Smithsonian is a production of the Scripps Washington Bureau and Stitcher. I'm your host, Asif Monvi. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Asif and Facebook at Asif Monvi. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. It really helps other people find the show. Thank you so much for listening.